sometimes you have to remind people that they're spiraling, right? Like people tend to spiral when they're under chronic stress. And the key is, is that like, you've got to rein in in your brain and you've got to realize that like, we we have natural um, inclinations to sort of go down these pathways of, of negative self-thought and, and negative patterning. And if we don't actually like notice our thoughts and notice the, the ways that our mind is working in real time, then we can end up with chronic stress bubbling over that stress cup and then you have like an infection and then you end up with a serious like health breakdown. And I've noticed this in a lot of patients lately. Welcome to the HBMN podcast, your resource for evidence-based nutritional strategies, cognitive performance, and fitness science. Thank you for joining us. This episode featuring returning favorite, Dr. Molly Maloof, focuses on stress, an essential facet of human function. How we perceive and respond to the stressors in our lives is key for our well-being. It's not all simply in your mind. Even if the source of your stress is mental, there can be physical and metabolic side effects. Intermittent fasting is an example of direct physical and metabolic stress. Yes, while we're huge advocates for fasting and its many benefits, it is important to understand this nuance, which teases out the question, should you still fast if you're under heavy stress? Speaking from personal experience, Dr. Maloof provides interesting insight as to when it may be time to take a break from fasting due to stress. In addition, Jeff and Dr. Maloof chat about nutritional periodization to train your metabolism, continuous glucose monitoring, how to interpret different glucose spikes, and the importance of mitochondrial function. Jeff, take it away. Molly, really great to have you back on the program. It's always fun to catch up. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, you're in our new studio now. And our first couple episodes that we spoke were some of our most popular episodes. Obviously, you're a well-known thought leader in personalized medicine and intermittent fasting. And I know our last conversations, which really focused on intermittent fasting broadly, but also specific for women, was a very helpful resource. So really excited to have you back on the program. So a lot of ways to jump in the conversation here, but Perhaps it might be most interesting to get some updates on what you've been working on over the last year. Sure. You started a new class at Stanford as a visiting lecturer. You've been working on some new concepts and ideas. I also have been following your personal Instagram and seeing all the experiments you've been doing <laughs> with different protocols. So yeah, curious to get the update over the last year. Oh my gosh, so much has changed. So I can't remember the last time I was here, but it was definitely last year at some point. Yeah. I was asked to speak at Stanford and become a lecturer there and essentially design a course around whatever topic I wanted to talk about, which was broadly health span. So the course was called Living Better Longer, Extending Health Span for Longer Lifespan. And it really was this sort of treatise on everyone's trying to ask, how do we get to 100, right? How do we get everybody healthier so that they live longer? And I think that the real answer is compressing morbidity to the very end of life. If you look at these centenarians in the world, most of them do get some chronic disease, but it's like the last three years of their life. Mm -hmm. So they're really healthy for longer. And that is, to me, the strategy we all need to be focusing on. How do we take our lives forward? But how do we do that? And so a lot of it has to do with breaking down fitness, metabolism, stress, and relationships into its constituent components and even nature and figuring out what are the biggest actionable steps that we can take to improve our health. One of the things that I discovered in the research of the course was just how important relationships are. It's kind of like an overlooked area, but it's really important that you maintain healthy relationships because it causes a lot of stress. So that was kind of an interesting discovery that I got. But then a large percentage of the course, I'd say a good 30% of it was all about metabolism, all about blood sugar management, the importance of fasting, how to implement fasting into your life without losing your mind. (laughs) Because a lot of people are still afraid of it. And then essentially 
you know, all the different things that we can do to monitor our health in real time to enhance our health, different things like hormesis, optimizing our fitness regimens to optimize our metabolic flexibility. I did have designed an entire lecture on metabolic flexibility that I didn't actually end up giving because it was so complex that I was like, this might be only for doctors right now and for people who are super nerds. Right. I was afraid it was going to be over students' heads. But I think that metabolic flexibility is going to be a really important facet of metabolism that everyone's going to be talking about. And so that was with a course. And I have one more lecture left next week. It's been so much fun teaching students and seeing how they've responded to all the content. But then I've also been working on a company. And exciting. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out for the last few years, how do I take health optimization to the masses? And what's the most scalable product that can be brought to people? And I really have come to the conclusion that CGM. And so I started building out some decks, working with sort of co-founder dating and randomly like there was a point and I actually just talking to VCs that I'm friends with. I got enough positive signals that this was the right move to take. But then, you know, my VC friends were like, you know, you've got to find a CTO and you got to find someone to help you build your business model. So randomly, when that was like my intention, I was sending out a few days later, I literally got emails from these two guys in Chicago who are working on the exact same thing I was working on. And they were working on a business model and working on a deck and working on this technology. And I was like, wow. You How guys did they are... find you? I mean, that's pretty fortuitous. It was really fortuitous. Yeah. It was very much a weird synchronicity. But I think the fact that if you search my name on the internet and you search for like CGM or doctors who are interested in this, I'm yeah. pretty out there about how much I'm passionate about this. Yep. And then also the fact that I worked at Sano for like the last year. So Sano is still trying to pull their product together and they're still fundraising, but they did have to downsize dramatically, which opened up an opportunity for me to think about, well, I want to keep doing this and I really am passionate about this. So I decided that maybe building a software company for CGM would be the right play because I thought really hard about how other companies have come to be like 23andMe and Illumina and how 23andMe was like one of the first consumer facing genetics companies. And I said, you know, there's totally room to be the first consumer facing CGM company. Yep. And Sano really could have been that. But I think the conclusion that Ashwin has come to and what a lot of people the have come CEO to. CEO of Sano. It, CEO of Sano yeah. is that Sano may have been better off being a straight hardware play <laughs> with API for helping companies build upon it. So I'm really thinking that that's the right strategy to take this company. So the company that I'm working on is called NutriSense. So we're kind of exiting stealth this summer, which is exciting. But yeah, like the time to start a company is when you think that you may know something that can give you an advantage over everyone else. And I feel like I have a lot of experience and knowledge at this point where I've read more white papers on CGM than anyone I know. And even I listen to Peter Atia's podcast and I'm like, this guy's arguably one of the experts in CGM and I still feel like I can teach him things. So <laughs> I feel really confident that I'm like one of the few people who can do this. I think that when we got to know each other a couple of years ago, I think we were in a very different, I think, social, cultural understanding of CGM, yeah. continuous glucose monitoring. I remember yeah. when we started implanting these yeah. things, it was very cyborgy, yeah. very fringe. We were using diabetic medical devices for sort of human optimization or biohacking use cases. Yeah. And now fast forward to years. It's been a lot more in the public consumption and much more in public dialogue now. Yeah. So I think the timing is good. I'm curious over the last couple of years, as you've been personally studying using CGMs, mm -hmm. continuous glucose monitors, have you updated your thinking or what are some of the most interesting insights that you've oh got much gosh. more experience on this? Oh my gosh, my insights have changed a lot. First of all, I spent a large amount of time last year doing research. I spent like a whole year just dedicating myself to research to this. And so that time at Sano was epically valuable for my career and understanding of metabolic health. But I mean, I hate to keep it coming back to the same topic, but fasting 
was the big question mark I had in my book around, well, how do we lower fasting glucose? And fasting was like fundamentally the sort of silver bullet answer to that. And like the research that I did kind of backed up my mental model of how the body works around metabolism. So fundamentally, like we have this design in our genetics to be well adapted to fasting, but we've lost it because of our culture. And because over the last hundred years, we've been selling people this idea that people need to eat breakfast and snack all day. And those weren't really part of the human diet until like the last hundred years, which people don't realize. Like people weren't eating that much. People were eating maybe twice a day. Mm -hmm. And eating snacks was like just not a part of the culture. When human cultures develop Western eating habits, They typically adopt snack foods. And where do snack foods come from, right? They come from packaged, processed, highly refined carbohydrates and lots of vegetable oils, Mm -hmm. lots of sugar. These are metabolic toxins, right? And like the food industry has been doing their best to sell people these things that they don't need in order to get them to spend their money on nonsense. And the problem is, is the side effect of all this snacking and breakfast eating, I think, and particularly breakfast eating that involves like cereals, sugar and refined carbs. Like we have a really sick country and essentially fasting and intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating, what that's doing for people is it's tightening up that window and it's doing this thing called flipping the metabolic switch, which is moving someone from carbohydrate dominant metabolism to fat metabolism. It's actually training your mitochondria to actually effectively burn fat more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And so that has massive downstream effects because it's almost like our bodies like want this and yet we've forgotten this, right? So what I love about CGM is that you can literally quantify the time you have in carb metabolism. Now, if you go keto, you're going to see your body go flatline your glucose, right? Yep. But what's really interesting is that there's a lot of people who are doing keto or doing low carb, but they're occasionally cheating with really high carb foods. Yep. And you can actually see the damaging effects of that. You see a crazy spike. You see spikes, yeah. right? I have a friend who's a cancer patient mm-hmm. and he eats a super high carb vegan diet, but his blood sugar is like below 120 postprandial pretty much consistently. Mm. So I was actually surprised to see how healthy his blood sugar looked, despite the fact that he doesn't do intermittent fasting and he eats carbs all day long. There were maybe a few meals that were problematic that he had eaten out that were involving large amounts of potatoes and like a lot of, uh, he had some ice cream that day. But as long as he eats his healthy vegan diet, like he was able to eat flour-based foods, which I cannot touch because if I eat flour, I get a blood sugar spike. But I'm also adapted to lower carb eating right, right. now, right? So like what I've learned is so that- So when you say spike, are you looking at 150 megs per deciliter? Yeah, I'm looking above 140, okay. really. So what I've learned is that like, I feel best when my range is below 120 okay. and I don't go above 120. Like that's my optimal range. And then I also feel best when my fasting is around 80. Okay. And this is taking me years to accomplish this, like a few years of learning how to tone my metabolism yeah. through different behavioral changes. For me personally, eliminating flour and sugar, I am so much better off. But like there are people who do fine with flour and sugar. Yep. And it's amazing that like different people have different metabolisms and different responses. And so CGM is like this beautiful window into your health and into what's going on in your body. And if I eat that same diet that my friend who's a vegan eats, like cannot do well on that. So like we all need to realize that there's going to be different strategies to get to optimal blood sugar. And you may have to try different protocols and different behavioral programs to get to that place. But what works for one person may be different for someone else. And so what I want to do is provide people with the tool that can help them understand what's going to work for them. I think that's something that I talk a lot about, which is that you and I have different starting points. Mm -hmm. We potentially have different goals of what we want to optimize for, Mm -hmm. whether you want to optimize for health span or if I'm trying to win an Olympic gold medal, you know, for either weightlifting or marathons, very, very different nutritional protocols and exercise protocols for that. Mm -hmm. But having a tool like a CGM for 
where you can actually personalize and dial it in for yourself. That is, I think, really the future. And I think that's what you're looking to work on. Especially for performance as well, right? Yeah. Like anyone who's exercising regularly knows that they need different fuels for different things they want to achieve. Yeah. And there is still this like general carbohydrate dominant mantra of how people need to fuel athleticism. And I think that's true for performance. Like if you really need to go perform, eating some carbs is going to be really fast energy. It's going to give you this like sort of power boost. But if you're training, what I've learned is that nutritional periodization can boost metabolic flexibility. So you can do different training protocols where you might train keto one day. And that's literally like wearing a weighted vest versus fasted exercise, right? Which is also like a very efficient way of burning fat because you're going to burn up your glycogen stores. It's taken me a few months to really get into the habit, but high intensity interval training, if I do it three days a week, I see my weight change really fast. Yeah, let's talk about exercise, but I want to go back to the CGM and the fasted blood glucose a little bit. Sure, I think you're the right person to ask. I mean, folks that are listening probably are aware of fasted blood glucose, insulin, but I think it's interesting to actually get into your numbers. So you're trying to minimize spikes to be below 120 and you're trying Mm -hmm. to target an 80 milligram deciliter on weight. That's optimal, I think. Yeah, so I'm curious, like as you recommend to your clients or patients, started, it was all below 100 for fasting, below 140 for postprandial. Okay. Because above that is pre-diabetic, yep. right? So I was like, well, as long as you're not pre-diabetic, you must be fine. But that's not the case, actually. So I started doing even more research into this and discovered that, in fact, like there is this idea of being sort of pre-pre-diabetic where you're not pre-diabetic yet, but you're also maybe partially insulin resistant or metabolically inflexible. Mm-hmm. Meaning that let's say you have a family history of diabetes. There's like literally six different tests you can do, but fundamentally like going fasting to a carb stimulus, you'll see a person more likely raise their blood sugar to borderline pre-diabetic levels versus somebody who doesn't have that family history. Mm-hmm. I wish I had my presentation in front of me to go over this because it's like pretty cutting edge stuff. But essentially what you'll find is like somebody who goes into fasting is not going to drop into fat metabolism as fast. So they're not going to fast as easily, which means that they're going to feel like their fuel supplies are low when they're trying to implement these behavioral changes. And so what that's telling us is that they're metabolically inflexible, which means that they're not easily sort of shifting back and forth. A really healthy body is able to take whatever fuel that it has available to it. Generally speaking, one fuel source being fat or carbs. Most of the time when people basically taking whatever fuel source that they have available to them and efficiently starting to burn that fat or burn that carbohydrate. The problem comes in when people basically eat high fat, high carb foods together because that causes metabolic gridlock. And so that's kind of like a traffic jam in your mitochondria. It's like- And that's a standard Western diet. A standard Western diet. (laughs) So it's not surprising we're all getting really sick, right? But it's also not surprising that a person with a family history of diabetes also has metabolic inflexibility because A, they were probably born to that person, right? So they were born with maybe a person with gestational diabetes, or they were also raised at a very young age to have a diet that was not adaptive to health. Yeah. So it's not all genetics. It's a lot of it's the nature and the nurture combined. Right. And so I think that these individuals with family history of diabetes are set up for failure with metabolic health because they are in that environment with that genetics. Right. So the question is, is how do we start measuring and monitoring sooner so that we don't end up with prediabetes or diabetes. And so I'm just curious, my, I'm sort of banking on this idea that like people want to know about their health before they're sick. Yep. To me, prediabetes is a sickness state and prediabetes, you've already lost a good percentage of your beta cell function. You've already demonstrated that you're not successfully metabolizing carbohydrates. So I just don't want you to get to that point. And there's a lot of benefits to avoiding insulin resistance, right? Like insulin resistance is a huge problem for people because it can have all these downstream negative effects like acne. 
people don't realize that hyperinsulinemia contributes to acne. Where do you get hyperinsulinemia? You get it from large insulin spikes from too much refined carbs and too much refined sugar. Yep. So if you just eliminate those things from your diet, you see your skin improve. Yep. And I was just looking at this very famous model on Instagram. She's got like 800,000 followers. She's a sort of famous Australian model. She was like complaining about how bad her skin was and showed a photo of how bad her skin was when it without makeup. And whenever I see someone with acne and I look at what they eat, inevitably it's a frying flour and sugar. And so getting better blood sugar has better effects beyond just avoiding disease. It's like, I want to look better. I want to feel sexier. I want to have better hormones. I want to have better performance in my athleticism. Like I want all these things that go beyond just being not sick. I want to live a long longer. I want to maintain organ reserve. Right. I want to be able to like not have wrinkles. Like my skin has gotten actually younger looking since I've fasted more. I've noticed that when I'm not fasting as often, my skin is not as good. So it's like, I want all of these cool things that come from better blood sugar. And I think CGM is the pathway to get there. Yeah. I want to touch on a couple points that you mentioned hormone health. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the conversations we've had with low carb advocates are around, especially towards female health is around Mm -hmm. PCOS. I know Mm -hmm. you have some ideas and concepts around PCOS, but not to go too far away from here. I think the interesting thing you brought up is that you're really pushing this notion that pre-diabetes is already a sickness state. That even pre-diabetes is bad. You're trying to address the pre-pre-diabetes, which is kind of this cutting edge here. Yeah. And your definition of that is try to target 80 as opposed to 100 for fasting mm-hmm. glucose. And you try mm-hmm. to keep your postprandial 120 where the rule of thumb is 140. Yeah. And then perhaps to illuminate and elucidate for our listeners. So say that, okay, you have a big carby meal, you spike above 140 or 160, it's like mm-hmm. 200. Mm-hmm. But it comes down quite nicely after a couple hours. So what is really going on in that extra 50 milligrams deciliter for that one hour where it's really, really high? Well, what people don't realize is that when you have that level of blood sugar in your body, it's taxing your mitochondria. And your mitochondria are like, oh crap, I got to burn this, right? So mitochondria produce oxidative stress and you get this burst of oxidative stress, which is essentially like exhaust fumes in your cells. And those exhaust fumes are getting into your bloodstream and they're damaging your blood vessels. So basically your entire bloodstream is your blood vessels, right? So like damaged blood vessels sets you up for heart disease, sets you up for damaging blood vessels in your brain, contributing to things like vascular dementia and damaging blood vessels in your kidneys. So the idea is that you don't want to damage your blood vessels while you're young. We know that diabetes damages blood vessels, but we also know that these oxidative stress bursts are damaging. And if you want to avoid these chronic diseases, you got to make sure you don't do that to your body. Basically, all the research is suggesting it's that those postprandial spikes are significantly damaging to blood vessel health. That's part of the reason why we want to keep people with lower blood sugar. We also want to have lower insulin levels Mm -hmm. because you have this beautiful organ called your pancreas, but it can only be taxed so much before it stops working. And so every time you have hyperinsulinemia, which means you have to push out extra insulin to lower your blood sugar to maintain your health, it's like you're taxing your body's systems. You're taxing that pancreas and you're giving it more work than it needs to do, which means it's going to wear out sooner, which means a large percentage of diabetes is just age related. It just comes from being old. And so if you don't want to ruin your pancreas and have diabetes at 70, then you have to keep it younger for longer. And the way to do that is to not give it the stimuli that cause it to wear out. Yep. So, yeah, I think that's a good practical tip in the sense that, you know, when you're drinking that soda or that OJ, mm-hmm. that's just 50, 60, 70 grams of sugar and you mm-hmm. see that spike. Yes, if you're young and healthy, you'll recover pretty quickly postprandially. Yeah. But that spike and that extra 50 milligrams deciliter of sugar is actually damaging your vascular tissue, right? Your yeah. vascular blood vessels and the inflammation and that leads down the line to atherosclerosis, exactly. all of that. So Exactly. Yeah. And acne, right? Yeah. Like hyperinsulinemic states contribute to hormonal dysfunction 
and they contribute literally to acne formation. There's great research on this that's come out. And yet it hasn't made it to the mainstream yet. Yeah. But like, what's a great stimulus for insulin as well is dairy. So like dairy products are fabulous for growth. If you want to build muscle and want to drink a bunch of whey, if you're not using the fuel in your body, all that insulin, all that sugar is still causing inflammation in your body as well. Mm -hmm. And that's contributing to poor skin health. Yeah. And so there's a bunch of different reasons. But getting back to the hormone topic, there's really sort of two states that women need to think about when they're thinking about fertility. And one is, do they have enough hormones or do they have too many hormones? It's really a very simple way of describing it. But there are women that are sort of overweight or maybe not overweight, but have hormonal dysfunction through polycystic ovarian disorder. And that's typically a hyperinsulinemic state. That's a high insulin state. So for those women, they really want to lower their blood sugar. They really want to lower their insulin output. They really want to lower their dairy consumption and lower sugar consumption. These are women that I would not recommend Greek yogurt to. Uh, these are women that I would recommend very much more plant-based nutrition, lower carb. I'm not anti-meat or anti-fish, but I would definitely want them to be eating enough fiber to bind up those hormones. But really lowering their insulin output is key. On the other hand, there's women who are the kind of infertility where they're just underweight. They actually need to put on a little bit of body fat or they actually maybe need to instigate some growth. Mm -hmm. High fat dairy products are actually great for them because maybe they have lower hormone levels because they've actually pushed their body weight levels too low. Right. And so those are the women that actually need to stimulate growth and need to eat more and need to fasting. gain weight and shouldn't be fasting as much. Right. So it's about a balance. And it's about asking, what are the signals that you're sending your body? And in those women, if their body fat's too low, that means I'm going to prioritize survival over reproduction. If you want to send the survival signals, you need to send the signals that there's food availability in your environment. So you want to send the signals that you need to eat more. And those are women that need to actually eat more calories and gain some weight. No, I think that's well said. And, and especially in terms of the conversation around intermittent fasting, mm -hmm. I think, especially as it's geared towards women, there's always the question. I'm sure you've heard this question. Is fasting for everyone? If you're underweight, if you have previous histories with eating disorders, that necessarily be for you. And it sounds like what you're saying here is that, yeah, if, if you start from an underweight position yeah. and you're looking to improve your hormone profile, you know, fasting is not necessarily for you at that right. time. Yeah. Well, here's a really great example I've got from someone on Instagram today who messaged me. She was like, I've tried intermittent fasting, but I just can't do it because I'm just ravenously hungry. And I was like, well, tell me about your stress levels. And she goes, oh, I'm pretty much always on edge all the time. I have a super high stress job. I take Vyvanse and I drink four cups of coffee a day. <laughs> and I was like, well, what people don't realize about stimulants is that Vyvanse is synthetic stress. Yeah. You are literally sending out more epinephrine and norepinephrine in your body when you take an amphetamine. Yeah. So like you're doubling your stress levels through that. And then you're actually just taxing your body more by drinking three, four cups of coffee. So you're like in a super fight or flight state constantly. That is a signal to your body that you are unsafe, that there is danger in your environment. Your body does not know where it comes from. All it knows is that it's getting signals. Yep. Your cells are dumb. They're actually like, I don't know where it's coming from, but I feel like there's a danger sign. And this is the funny thing about our bodies is that like, we don't realize where our stress comes from. We're like, yes, of course, a high-stress job is one thing, but like there are millions of people on stimulants. There are millions of people that are abusing coffee. I mean, I drink about two to three cups a day. I know when I'm drinking too much coffee because I know that it's a coping mechanism, right? Like people who are running out of steam are using coffee to like replace their energy levels, yeah. right? Like I've been working, arguably, this is not healthy, six days a week, many 12-hour days since January. So like I am fully aware that this is not a lifestyle that I need to sustain. But I also took on an extra job as a teacher and like I'm a perfectionist. So I was like working very hard to make these lectures literally perfect. Yeah. Do I think that this is healthy for me long term? Absolutely not. But I'm going to take some time off in June and July and actually like recalibrate and then start fundraising. Yeah. So I've learned a lot in that process. So I'm going to tell you a story about my own personal experience. I started fasting 
while I was under a little bit less stress in February and March. And I was doing three 36-hour fasts a week. I lost 10 pounds and I've actually kept most of it off. Actually, no, I lost like 13 pounds. And then I kept about 10 of it off back and forth, depending on the week. But generally speaking, those months were like, I was sort of heads down in work and I didn't have nearly as much stress as I did when I started teaching and started actually adding that new job. And what I found is that during those two months, like I felt very resilient. I felt very much in control of my eating habits. I didn't feel like I was over consuming when I was refeeding. I felt really good. My skin looked incredible. And I just, I really felt like I'd mastered the 36 hour fast. And I like, didn't feel like it it was actually a problem. But then I basically came back from Japan and there was like a bunch of stuff that was going on in my life. And a bunch of change started happening over the course of a month. And then like I consider your allostatic burden, which is basically your stress cup. It's a cup that you can fill with stressors. I started filling it with new stressors, which was new patients wanting to come to see me. Starting to teach, having a breakup, having a business breakup. And then before I knew it, my stress load was overflowing. Mm -hmm. And I could not do a 36-hour fast without losing my mind. So I was like, wow. This is literally a signal. My body is like asking me to reduce my stress levels. So I started cutting back on the weightlifting. I started cutting back on the fasting. I started doing regular meal timing and I started taking some adaptogens and I started really listening to my body, realizing like you cannot absolutely do every stressor that you want. I did add back in cardio and I started just doing low, moderate intensity cardio. And then I just started doing intermittent fasting instead of extended fasting. So I would do a couple intermittent fasts a week. Because that was all my body could actually handle. Like a 16-8 type thing. Yeah. And it was really like, I could only do that a few days a week. And my body was literally sending me the signal. You need to tell me that I'm safe or you're not going to be able to handle the stress. And it was a really good learning experience for me because I think a lot of people who are hyper ambitious type A's want to say like, I can do all these things. I can do keto. I can do low carb. I can do fasting. I can do weightlifting. And then you see these people burn out. And I didn't want to burn out. So what I said is, okay, what would be the right lifestyle for me right now to handle the stress burden that I've got? And a lot of it was just changing the dose of things, right? Not completely eliminating weightlifting, but doing it maybe less often, doing a little bit more yoga, doing a few high intensity interval trainings per week, but only 20 minutes at a time. Nothing too crazy. I haven't gotten sick yet. Knock on wood. I've actually felt like I've been able to bounce back from the high stress period of time I had. And, you know, I've gained a few pounds, but then they come off. Mm -hmm. So weight to me is basically your body's defense mechanism for stress. Like, so when people are gaining weight, it's typically related to their bodies being like, I need to protect myself. I need to make sure that I have fuel if there is a famine. It's a very logical response to your body's wanting to always protect you in a time of stress. And so what I've really learned about health is that your body's always trying to take care of you. And the question is, are you listening to the signals it's sending you? And are you actually responding to it effectively? Yeah, I've just been nodding along for the last couple of minutes as you've been explaining, I think, really clearly some of these concepts, which is that stress in terms of how your cells process it, they don't know if it's a saber-toothed tiger chasing you Mm -hmm. or if it's a job stress. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you stack more and more of these things Mm -hmm. and you're trying to do keto, long fast, heavy exercise, I mean, you're just overloading your system. And I think that's where you have to understand the nuance of how to apply these things. And also understand your baseline. Yeah. Because some people... People, you probably notice this when you start to exercise more, you honestly have a larger container of stress that you can hold yep. because you have more capacity. Yep. Where does that capacity come from? It comes from more capacitors. Where do capacitors come from? Mitochondria are capacitors. <laughs> they create a membrane potential. They store charge. Yeah. And so the more mitochondria you have, the more batteries you have to fuel your life. Yeah. And like the thing that I've been really trying to figure out is what do you do to generate mitochondrial biogenesis? Yep. And it really comes down to the right kind of exercise 
avoiding allostatic overload, avoiding the stressors that are literally damaging your mitochondria, which is largely our psychological stress, dealing with your stress, right? Like figuring out how to not just reduce it, but also how do you bounce back from it? How do you build your sort of mental fortitude around it? How do you basically exercise your mind so that you can reframe shitty situations that could really cause you to fall apart and instead you change the frame around it? You cognitively reappraise the situations in your life that are challenging for you and you turn it into a positive. How do you like use your metabolism to generate this metabolic flexibility, which theoretically does generate more mitochondrial biogenesis. Hey listeners, if you're enjoying this episode thus far, please consider writing a review on our iTunes page. It really does help increase the visibility of our podcast. That's really the best way to support our work. In appreciation for your review, we'll hook you up with $15 of HVMN store credit. We also love it when we see you guys share our episodes that you've enjoyed on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And we often reshare those posts. Just tag us at our handle, at HVMN. Now, back to the show. So we hinted at exercise earlier. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes on the program, we have Ironman world champions or Mm -hmm. Olympic athletes talking about their physical training. But I imagine for most of our listeners and myself included, I'm not going to be a world champion athlete. But I do care about exercise to maximize health span. And how do I maximize my longevity and health biomarkers? So curious to hear about your journey and your understanding and your learnings around how to best apply exercise. You talked a little bit about high intensity interval training, weightlifting, cardio. Mm-hmm. How do you structure this? And and then from a high performance perspective, a lot of athletes talk about nutritional periodization. Yeah. And can we take some of those concepts and apply that to everyday intellectual worker lifestyles? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that I, in fact, mostly work with knowledge workers. Yep. So I'm definitely not like a physician who works with sports teams yet, yep. but eventually probably will when the CGM company comes along. But the one scientist I would turn to if anyone's here's listening who's like a coach or trainer wants to really dig into is Louise Burke. Mm-hmm. She's this phenomenal woman who's basically written everything on the topic. And I need to reach out to her and basically get her to advise my company because <laughs> she's like the guru of this entire topic. Yeah, Australian researcher. Yeah, yeah exactly. Great. I kept on looking into like using keto and training and using low carb nutrition and fitness. And the conclusion that I kept on coming back to was that There are people who can succeed with low-carb diets, and there are people who do well with it. But it does seem like with exercise that requires high intensities, you do need a certain amount of glycogen around to really perform. So Olympic weightlifting, right? Like sprinting, for example. I wouldn't guess that these people are going to do that well in their performance on competition day. I doubt they're going to really effectively do their very best work on a completely glycogen depleted state. Mm -hmm. I just can't imagine that's going to work that way. Mm -hmm. Arguably, people who have high intensity regimens like rowers, it would be challenging for me to imagine that on their race day that they're going to do well with like no glycogen around. On the other hand, there are people that are succeeding and doing well on keto nutrition but they are highly fat adapted and they are highly adapted to training in that environment. Also, the argument that like maybe carbs around that day would still give them like an extra power boost. Yep. The real magic in this nutritional periodization seems to be happening around taking people who seem to be metabolically inflexible athletes, like these cyclists that are carb loaded constantly and like are on carbs all the time, every day, never flipping the metabolic switch. You look at them and you find they've got some visceral fat you find that they don't have good blood sugar metabolism and you take them and you shift them into ketosis and you shift them into fasting and you burn off that visceral fat. 
And now you're really improving someone's health because you're lowering that fasting glucose and you're actually training their mitochondria to better metabolize fat more effectively so that they're less likely to bonk during a performance or during a training session. Yep. One of my friends had done no training for this first triathlon that she went and decided to just randomly do. The one thing she had been doing over the course of a month was I got her into CGM and fasting. And I said, I want you to start fasting regularly to see if you can improve your health. And I want you to cut out all refined carbs. So no flour and no sugar. And so she literally just did this for a month and she was kind of burned out from her company shutting down. And she'd been going through this. She'd ran a startup for a year and she was a mom and there's a lot going on in her life. So I was like, look, I don't know if you should really like go off and do a bunch of like competition right now. But she's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to go do this triathlon. I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. I can't promise you're going to do well, but like, see how you do. Yeah. And she went and she did it and she finished it and did great. But the funny thing is, is that one of her friends that she did it with who had been training on carbs for months actually bonked in the triathlon huh. because she ran out of fuel yeah. and she had nothing left, right? And this is a great example of someone who's metabolically inflexible. Yeah, she was so inflexible, she couldn't fat adapt. She couldn't fat adapt. Instantly on, the, on race day. Exactly. Yeah. Here is my friend who got rapidly fat adapted in the course of a month yeah. to somebody who's been training on carbs. And I was like, this is a perfect example of where athletes can really maximize their ability to perform because- if you are carb adapted and you're never burning fat, like you're going to be on race day. And unless you've got your goos and your gels, which by the way, I met one of the doctors at a party recently who literally was like the scientist behind the gels and the goos. Yeah. And he's like, we've shown that we can improve performance. And I was like, look, anyone he can show in a scientific study that like giving someone carbs is going to make them run faster, but you're not improving health. There's a big difference between improving health and performing performance. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of performance enhancing tools in the world that are terrible for health. Yep. I'm I interested. Mean, if you do cocaine before a I'm sure they'll yeah, push you, right? Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, what I think the real future of athleticism and health is like, how do we keep athletes performing well and living long? Because yep. a lot of athletes do have side effects of their lifestyles. There is actually this J-shaped curve in athleticism where super high intensity exercise seven days a week over the years is going to shorten your lifespan. And we don't want that. And I have a lot of friends who are professional athletes and I want them to live longer and feel healthier and not get sick and not get disease. And so I think it's paramount that we figure out this nutrition piece to athleticism and performance so that we can keep people not only really performing well, but having really healthy lives. Yeah, I think that's definitely a mind shift sense that I have with my conversations with elite athletes, where if you talk to a lot of athletes, they'll be like, yeah, I don't care about living five years longer. I just want to win a gold medal. Yeah, that's true. So there's definitely that true. mindset in that level of population. Yeah. But I think the mind shift is turning as athletes' careers getting longer. Yeah. That, yeah, you could peak for one year and get that gold medal for that one year, but you're not going to be able to continue performing over a career of three, four, ten years. So I think yeah. just how do you find that balance? Yeah. I think at some level, there is orthogonality between longevity and performance. Because as you're saying, if you exercise too much, you're going to be breaking down your body. And it's hard when your goal is to be an Olympian versus your goal is to live to 100. Sometimes it, it counteracts, right? Well, this is where the intersection between HRV and CGM is really powerful. Because I definitely noticed on days where I was the most stressed, and I've noticed this in patients, I've noticed this in clients, I can see that somebody who's under stress has higher glycemic variability. You can see it in the curve. Part of it's because they're eating more often throughout the day. You see people sort of scavenge food. You're like, I need to find food. And so people are snacking and eating throughout a day when they're more stressed out because food is the most easy thing you can reach towards when you're stressed. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is one of the things that got me off of fasting when I was the most stressed out was that I was noticing my blood sugar rising as I was fasting, huh. right? So you should see it drop. 
but it wasn't dropping. It was only going up. <laughs> and so the like reason why- body's releasing more cortisol. More cortisol. Yeah. I now have like a sensor within my brain of this is what high cortisol feels like. But the cool thing is, is I've developed that sort of like internal interoception, this concept of feeling the inside of your body, feeling the senses of your inside self, like versus exteroception, which is like sight, vision, touch. Yeah. It's like, no, I, I can feel what a blood sugar of 140 feels like. So no, confirming it, this with data. So I it's not just like it. you just like I've going done enough crazy. feedback cycles. You've patterned that it's like, your feeling to, to I, I numbers. Now, yeah. yeah, I've now developed this, like these senses that, by the way, when we were like in the Savannah, we were foraging food. Like we knew when our body was low blood sugar because we were going to go out and find food. Yeah. But like that was a heightened state of focus. That is a state where you're fasting, which no one ever talks about. You're getting free catecholamines. You don't need Adderall. I think a lot of people are taking Adderall for that boost of catecholamines, which you can get naturally through fasting. Yeah. And I, when I was doing fasting and I was doing research and I was in Japan and I was like spending a lot of time in research, I found that the days when I was fasting were the days where I had the best focus. And the days when I was eating, it was like, you really start the feeling of, I can feel the blood flow going to my gut. Yeah. I can feel my body start to digest. I can feel my brain literally reduce its capacity to think. You develop these like really in touch sensations. And I really hope that this is potentially humanity's future. And that CGM is just a stepping stone to getting people to the point where they actually can develop this knowledge on their own. But the thing that I love about CGM and I love about fasting is like, when you get off of it, you can fall off the wagon a little bit, right? But then you start feeling like, for example, I ate some pie a few days ago that had no sugar in it, but it was like flour. And I fall asleep right after. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I know that that spiked my blood sugar. I know because I got so tired afterwards and that's just not me. I'm never this tired after eating anymore. And like being tired after meals is a really good signal that you've got some insulin resistance or you've got some immune reaction to the food you're eating. Right. I hope that humanity can develop this understanding of their bodies. And then if they need to use technology to sort of get back on their programs, great. But then eventually, like if people don't need it, great as well. It sounds like you've developed a lot of self-awareness and self-reflection across it. And you mentioned something about mindset yeah. as part of overall resilience and overall health span. And this might be a good transition into that topic. I think when I did a seven day water fast, I think I had a lot of similar experiences as, as you described, where you just really understand how you feel. You really yeah. understand the difference between bored hungry or stress hungry versus actual physiological nutritional hunger. Yeah. There's a lot of different hungers. Yeah. I actually went over this in my class about how there's true hunger, yeah. which is I legitimately have low blood sugar below 85. Yeah. And then there's all these hormonal hungers, right? There's like the hunger of insulin spikes and drops that when your insulin spikes and it drops, you actually get hungrier. That's versus like ghrelin, which ghrelin naturally peaks about three times a day. Mm -hmm. So there's like the ghrelin hunger that's circadian programmed. And then there's the cortisol hunger, which is like, I need food because I need to be safe. And then there's the leptin resistance hunger, which is I literally am never full because I have leptin resistance and I'm not getting the signals that I should be getting. So the byproduct of that is that I'm just hungry all the time. There's also the emotional hungers, right? The hunger of feeling lonely. There's the hunger of feeling sad. <laughs> the funny thing about this woman whose pie that I eat is her pies are called revenge pie. So it's like the <laughs> hunger of being pissed off and angry and just wanting to eat something. You know, it's like there's all these hungers that are associated with emotions. And yet we're always turning to food as our answer. And what I've learned through managing stress and mastering stress is there's a bunch of different things that you can do to master your mindset and your stress that aren't related to food. 
Things like running, for example, like stress would have been typically a danger signal. And like running away from something is actually a great way to modify your stress response. So essentially channeling a psychological stress into a physical stress and you kind of run it out. Yeah, exactly. So I think exercise is a great antidote for stress. As long as it's healthy and it's not becoming like exercise bulimia. But getting back to hunger, there's also the hunger that comes from your environment, right? So just smelling food and seeing food can instigate the hunger response. There's these sort of olfactory pathways. Just tasting something in your mouth can make you hungry. And then there's like the social hunger, right? I'm sitting in a group of people. Everyone else is eating. I'm going to eat. That's the hardest thing to deal with with fasting is that the social interaction. And then there's the hunger of sitting with your parents and they're expecting you to finish your meal, right? You're like literally home visiting family and like, why aren't you eating? You know, stuff like that. So there's all these different socially acceptable ways of eating that are cultural and are part of our daily lives that really we may think we're hungry because we're in these environments, but we're not actually hungry. Yeah. So what's the antidote here? Is it just updating culture, education, making it okay to fast? People need to get over the idea that just because one person is eating means everyone has to eat Mm -hmm. because like that would make fasting much more socially acceptable. That is a hard challenge. It is really awkward to go to a dinner with someone and not eat and have them eat. If they're not cool about it, they can feel really awkward. A lot of people sort of feel like if you are doing something different, then maybe I should be doing what you're doing right now. And now I feel guilty for doing what I'm doing. (laughs) I basically like a few years ago discovered that there was like an antidote to social anxiety. There was a switch that flipped in my brain, which was like, I don't have to feel awkward at all anymore, anytime. Everyone else can feel awkward, but I just don't have to feel that way. And it was like, oh, wow, I could be in weird situations (laughs) and just everyone else can be socially awkward, but I don't care anymore. And it's funny because... I don't even notice other people's awkwardness really that much. I just kind of feel like so much of social awkwardness just comes from people feeling they have to behave a certain way because everyone else behaves a certain way. Right. But when you become your own boss and you like carve your own path and you've basically been doing things differently than everyone else for so many years, you basically have to get really comfortable with like having weird conversations with people. That's basically been like the last eight years of my life is like, how are you a doctor that does what you do? And why do you do what you do? And how do you do it? You just get used to it. So, so do you think it's like an exercise that you just have flex so much? That, yeah, okay, it's a, I just don't even care about social awkwardness anymore. Yeah. I actually had a boyfriend a few years ago who really taught me sort of mental mastery skills. And one of the skills he taught me was that anything that in your brain that you feel negative, you can literally reframe by just practice. Mm-hmm. And so he had this notebook that I adopted, which is really a list of to-dos that you do every day. And in that list, there's my work list, my checking my email twice a day, which is like great hack of avoiding anxiety. Just don't check your email more than twice a day. There's like the things that I do for nutrition, for fitness, relationships, motivation, the things that I track for mindfulness, for sort of like creative visualization, stuff like that. Yeah. So there's all these different practices that you can implement into your life. And it changes every quarter for me, depending on what I'm feeling like I'm working on. But it's kind of like exercise of your mind. So when I reframe something negatively, literally, this is in psychological literature, I discovered it's called cognitive reappraisal. And I learned about this actually through reading about love. I could literally do a whole podcast on love because this is a fascinating topic. But when you're in love with someone and you want to maintain your love feelings for that person, you can literally just focus on the positive of that person and idealize them and literally ignore the negative. And if you do that, you're literally going to upregulate your love feelings for that person. Interesting. But the downside is that if you're breaking up with someone and you want to not think about them anymore or you want to get over your breakup faster, you have to basically constantly flip the switch of instead of focusing on the great things about the relationship, you have to focus on all the things and all the reasons why you're not supposed to be with them. And if you do that, it makes the breakup so much easier. 
Because focusing on the positive makes you love them more. Right. Focusing on the negative makes you love them less. So you can literally change your relationship to reality by just focusing your attention on positive or negative facets of reality that you want for yourself. Yep. So for fasting, focusing on the fact that you focus better, focusing on the fact that like you are mastering your mind, focusing on willpower. For me, it's wanting to avoid chronic disease, wanting to be the example for all my patients to not get Alzheimer's, not get cancer. I have a lot of different reasons why I focus on implementing things that are difficult into my life as like daily practices and making them positive. It sounds like as you get more in tune with how your brain works, I mean, that sounds like a very good practical tip. Like if you want to kind of gauge your reality, a lot of it, how you perceive is just how you perceive things. And if you focus that attention on certain aspects of reality, you really create that reality around you. Well, exactly. And I have friends who struggle with depression and Mm -hmm. I notice when I'm talking to them, like I had a conversation with a friend and I was like, have you noticed that almost every answer that you've made to any suggestion that I've given you has been a negative response? Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, fair, fair comment. And I was just like, have you noticed that whenever you talk about your kids, you focus on the stress that they cause you, not on the joy that they bring you? You sometimes remind people that they're spiraling, right? People tend to spiral when they're under chronic stress. And the key is, is that you've got to rein in in your brain and you've got to realize that like we have natural inclinations to sort of go down these pathways of negative self-thought and negative patterning. And if we don't actually notice our thoughts and notice the ways that our mind is working in real time, then we can end up with chronic stress bubbling over that stress cup. And then you have like an infection and then you end up with a serious like health breakdown. And I've noticed this in a lot of patients lately because I've gotten some chronic fatigue patients coming to me and their story is always the same. It's that they had a lot of stress and a high stress job and high stress life. They weren't taking great care of themselves. And then they got hit with a really bad infection. And then for some reason, they just completely crumbled after that. Mm. Or they got hit with like an infection and a divorce. And it's almost like their body's immune system was set up for failure because of that chronic stressor. And then a lot of these infections that people get that cause chronic fatigue are known to affect the mitochondria, which I just discovered. So spirit sheets, for example, Lyme and syphilis are known to affect mitochondria and produce mitochondrial antibodies. And a bunch of other viral infections can produce antimitochondrial antibodies. And then there's also just a bunch of research coming out around viral infect- and mitochondrial function themselves. Right. So I think that there's a really big area of research that needs to be dug into more relating to this idea of energy and fatigue and mitochondrial function. Yeah. And I actually feel like I'm opening up like a Pandora's box of like, holy crap, there's literally unending things that I could do research on right now. And the question is, is time. And I think you unpack like a good conversation around just traditional healthcare practices, because I think we talk to a standard doctor and I think they're trying to do their job the best they can, but they're very focused on the physical aspect of health, like just the physical symptoms and the pharmaceutical that will treat that exact physical symptom. But I think what you're addressing is that there's oftentimes a mental, psychological, almost the executive coaching side of health. Absolutely. And how do you intertwine the mental psychology side with the physical, physiological side of things? And I think Mm -hmm. that seems to be the direction that the world needs to go in because there's so much psychological stress that our population is facing every single day. I mean, it sounds like a lot of your clients are successful on the outside, but just taking a lot of mental stress and it's breaking down their body. There's a researcher at Columbia, Dr. Picard, and he is just like the guru. And the man has basically shown the connection between psychological stress and mitochondrial health. And it wasn't until I started reading his research where I feel like everything crystallized for me when I realized that our thoughts and our stress levels are physically damaging on a molecular level. Chronic stress, chronic hypercortisolemia, chronic activation of the catecholamine system without adequate recovery 
is going to break down, is actually going to damage your mitochondria directly. And then downstream from that are the markers of chronic disease. Also downstream of that, theoretically, are the markers of aging. It's this idea that there's all these nine hallmarks of aging. But a lot of the people in the mitochondrial camp and the mitochondrial theory of aging believe that all those are downstream and that fundamentally you need enough power to maintain enough energy to maintain the integrity of your structure. Mm-hmm. And that the structural, the physical self will break down when the energy deficiency begins. And that typically happens around midlife when people start losing that much capacity. So this changed my entire worldview when I started doing this research because I was like, in reading this research, I was like, okay, so here's literally this clear pathway of how overeating, inactivity, chronic stress contribute to damaged mitochondria, to the markers of aging, contributing to the markers of chronic disease. So when that switch flipped, I was like, okay, so like maybe all the emphasis really does need to be on lifestyle. And the real emphasis has got to be on using these drivers to optimize health and optimize mitochondrial health rather than just focusing on giving people drugs to prop themselves up. Right. It's almost too late. It's too late. Yeah. Your building's already broken down. You can only renovate a building so many times, right? Right. Like there's going to be a point where Venice is underwater and they're not going to be able to save those buildings potentially. I mean, they're going to keep trying, but largely this is like an ancient city that's like people are trying to prop up with like modern technology. And that to me is basically modern health. Giving people drugs for cholesterol and for diabetes is like taking a weeble wobble and it's literally broken and it's fallen over and it's trying to prop it up. And really what we're supposed to be doing when we're young is like bouncing back and bouncing back, but we're not doing that anymore. Right. We've lost that weight that's keeping us centered and now we're falling over and we're using primitive tools to prop ourselves up and it looks like we're healthier, but we're not really healthier. The cause is not resolved. And it's a really weird thing that drives me freaking insane is like statins increase risk of diabetes. High blood sugar damages blood vessels. Cholesterol has to go in and repair damaged blood vessels. I actually think we've gotten the entire theory on heart disease wrong. And I think that there's a lot of researchers that are basically saying, look, cholesterol is protective for a reason. So the question is, is what is it trying to protect you from? What is it trying to fix? Yeah. Why is it there? Is it actually dangerous? Peter Atia always says that it's necessary but not sufficient for causing heart disease. So the real thing that I think we need to think about is like what's causing inflammation in the blood vessels? Where is the lipopolysaccharide coming from? Is it coming from your oral health being disordered, from your gut being disordered? Basically, when you get integrity breakdown of these barriers, you let the body let in things that shouldn't be let into the bloodstream. And then the body literally has to come in and respond to that through activating the inflammatory response to these problems that are actually root causes of disease, rather than the modern medical system just saying the disease itself is hypercholesterolemia. The disease itself is diabetes. These are not diseases. These are organisms failing to adapt to the world that people are living in. And these systems that are set up in your body to protect you, failing. And like, that is chronic disease. And really, I'm so passionate about this because to me, it just feels like the modern healthcare system, by design, it's the best we've got so far, but it's not good enough. And it's not good enough to bring people into better health long-term. And it's not good enough to save the millions of people that are trying to avoid chronic diseases from shortening their health span. Right. I think doctors like yourself and conversations like this, it hopefully educates people and hopefully more and more services that get people to shift their mindset. One of the things I always like to ask with folks that have a medical or technical background is what kind of study or what kind of technology would you like to see exist? Obviously, you're working on a CGM-based mm. company. Mm. And as listening to some of your thoughts around CGM, you know, one of the 
core markers that glucose really is a function or a downstream effect of is insulin. I wonder if there's like a continuous insulin monitor that Mm -hmm. could be created or something. So curious to hear your thoughts on perhaps the direction of how you think about taking your company or technology that you wish to see that exist, whether that's a continuous insulin monitor, a better CGM. I want a continuous ketone monitor. Okay. Because if you had ketones and blood sugar at the same time, then you'd be able to literally see what your fuel supply is in real time, right? What do you have available to you? Generally speaking, the fuel available to you is your body fat. And then ideally, you don't want to tap into your protein stores. It's your glycogen, your body fat, and your protein, right? So generally speaking, your glycogen stores last about a day. Shorter if you exercise, which is the benefit of exercise as you're burning up that glycogen quicker. But when you're starting to track your metabolism in real time, when you see your ketones available and when you see your blood sugar drop, but your ketones are rising... You don't have to freak out because you know that you've got enough fuel. But when you measure your blood sugar and your ketones and you see they both go down and that they're both low, then you know that it's totally logical for you to feel like really stressed out and freaked out. This is where the magic happens when you start to learn to fast. Because when you start seeing your ketones rise, you're like, I've got this available to me. And let's see, what else would I like? So I really like the ketones and the blood sugar together. And then I think insulin would be awesome. would be really great. Real-time insulin and cortisol monitors. Because insulin is basically the growth signaling, right? And if I could get real-time brain frequencies, Mm. that could be cool. Because I'm starting to think that for Like beyond just like an EEG or... Kind of like EEG, but like theta state, alpha state, beta state. I listen to like different sort of theta and delta recordings when I want to drop my brain into different focus zones. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like for what HRV does for the stress response, these brain frequencies can do for like your brain's response to stress and your brain's response to the environment around you. So that would be cool. I definitely would like to marry CGM with movement and with HRV together with that all being in one device. That would be optimal. And I may do it someday. Like it's possible that... Yeah, hopefully you make it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, some of these hardware companies are running, their patents are going to run out in the next few years. So open door to start making these things. But honestly, hardware is so hard that I'd have to have a lot of money to build a hardware company. It's really hard to do. And it's just a pain in the ass. What else would I want? Cheaper ketones? I mean, I really want to be able to (laughs) prescribe food to people as drugs. And I think food prescriptions, like I was saying this like five years ago, and now everyone's like, oh yeah, that's obvious. And I was like, "Mm, that wasn't obvious five years ago. Everybody thought I was nuts. And so like really personalized nutrition prescriptions, that's going to be great. I'm fortunate that a lot of cool companies are coming to me for personalized nutrition interventions. So I got to follow up those guys. Gosh, what else? Personalized supplementation is still really expensive, but it's like one of those products that all my clients love and they always come back to me for. So if I could make that more scalable, I would make that product for people because I'm a big believer that supplements can actually improve health, but they have to be really dosed appropriately to your body. Right, tailored, right? And they're doing like blood panels to actually measure what they're doing. Exactly. And yeah. most of the time, the consumer products that get to market just aren't big enough doses. Because you really do need some oversight to know if that's going to push someone in the unhealthy level and you need the feedback loops. But there's a company called Bayes that does a really great job. And I'm actually just testing them out, but they theoretically are doing this. And I'm going to see if there's like a way to help them with more of a clinical play. Because I think that this is really important that people get enough vitamin D, enough magnesium, enough omega-3s and enough B vitamins so that their bodies function optimally, especially with methylation differences with genetics. So I think we're actually heading into a really exciting time for personalization of health and the consumerization of health. Yeah, I mean, I think over the last couple of years since we've been friends, I think we've seen the space move pretty quickly. Yeah. 
So yeah. I think there's a lot to be done. I'm sure we can go for another hour and a half. So we'll have to have you back on. But we're really excited to follow the journey of NutriSense. Yeah. And how do our fans and listeners follow? I know you have Instagram, yeah. Twitter. Well, What's help, the best way to get in touch? Have them come to NutriSense.io and sign up for our email list. And if they're interested in being a participant, definitely sign up because we're going to be starting trials this summer. And then come to my Instagram, drmolly.co, D-R-M-O-L-L-Y.co. You can also email me at molly at NutriSense.io for anyone who's interested in the company. And then if anyone wants to just Instagram me and send me questions, they if anyone has any questions about metabolism, I'm always curious to know what people want to learn more about and what kind of things people want to hear about on podcasts. I've been astonished at how many women have come to me about fasting. And I honestly think if it hadn't been for you guys really showing me that fasting really is important to health. <laughs> I think it's just life-changing information. So I think the more we can keep talking about this with people and time-restricted feeding really in particular, the more we can really get the country healthier. So send us your questions and your comments and what you're looking for with CGM and I'm happy to help. All right, well said. We'll have you Thanks. back on soon. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com dot com slash pod. Also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit. Our last shout out goes out to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes you find most valuable. Visit go.hvmn.com slash podcast survey for that survey. It'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway. Until next time, eat well, train smart, and live your life.